Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Right, let's pray. God in heaven, we uh, do thank you once again that you are the God who has uh, um, made a way in which for us to, to, to come to you, to, to be with you, to, to be at peace with you. Uh, and this is yet another occasion, um, an instance in your word that you remind us of that. And so I pray as we uh, look at the gospel again today that you would, um, that you would uh, give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, and uh, help us to, to see the, the wonderful things that you would have us to see in your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, waiting is probably one of the hardest things we do as human beings. If you've ever had to stand in the checkout line at the grocery store or sit at a red light, uh, typically, if you look around, uh, the, people, the, the way people handle the wait is by looking at their phone, typically. Because if, if we have to wait, a, a distraction will help us endure it. And so waiting is what we're going to, to look into today. But this isn't, this isn't waiting for your coffee to brew or the light to change green. This is waiting for the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is waiting for for Jesus to come to make all things new. This is waiting for him to bring in the new heavens and the new earth where where there will be no more pain or suffering or death. So in the meantime, Jesus, through Peter, gives us something to do that is way more vital than staring at your iPhone in the checkout line. Because what he has for us is vital for your soul and your faithfulness to the gospel. So I've broken up our text today in three ways. I know Tyler did four last week. I've already rebuked him for that. I apologize. But I've broken up our text today in three ways so that we can hear how Peter calls the church to live in the meantime. So one is by living diligently. Two is by living patiently. And three is by living actively. 
So live diligently, live patiently, live actively. So first, live diligently. Look there at verse 11. Peter says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. That was from the NIV, not the ESV. I think the NIV translates that a little bit better than the ESV does. But, uh, but, but Peter here is, is referring, when he says these things, uh, Peter is referring back to verse 10. These things are the heavens and the heavenly bodies. And what does Peter say will happen to them here? He says that they will be dissolved. So what does that mean? Well, the Greek is really helpful here because the Greek word for dissolve actually means to loose any person or thing tied or fastened to something else. So, so the idea is someone or something being released from something that constrains them. So Peter is essentially saying that on the last day, you will be released from everything on this earth. All of it will burn away. So Peter has already told us in verse 10 what will happen at the second coming of Christ. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which means we don't know when it's coming. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements on the earth will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And then this idea is completed at the end of verse 12. That day, the day of the Lord, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. So what this is saying here is that nothing will be left, and there will be no place to hide. I think a lot of times as modern day people, we do hide behind certain things, don't we? We hide behind our uh, fake Instagram profiles and we hide behind other people and we hide behind our jobs and our money and our possessions. But Peter is saying, there will be nothing left. That will not be possible on the last day. Meaning that in the coming world, we will not be able to use what we have accumulated in this present world. It will be meaningless. And this means that we will stand before God with nothing. So realizing that the earth as it is now is going to be burned up, we should not put our our confidence in that which will not survive the flames. The earth and its treasures and its pursuits will not uh, survive the flames. Rather... We should put our confidence in what is lasting and eternal. Which is what Peter says using uh, sort of the Socratic method of asking and answering his own question to make this very point. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, Peter asked this question. What kind of people ought you to be? If everything that you can hide behind or everything that you kind of put your trust in and hope in is is going to be burned up, how should you now live? And then he immediately gives us the answer. You ought to live holy and godly lives. 
So this is not the first time Peter calls his readers to holiness. He does so in his first letter uh, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Peter says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then he points back even further into the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, to quote God who says, You shall be holy for I am holy. So Peter is simply uh, calling his readers to do what God has always called his people to and expected his people to do, uh, which was to be holy. He calls them to holiness. So what does a holy and godly life look like for me and for you? Well, I think the easiest thing to do is to look back at the beginning of Second Peter, where Peter emphasizes that God, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, that God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. So God doesn't just say, go be holy and just figure it out yourself. He has given us everything we need to live a holy and godly life. And then Peter goes on after that to emphasize these virtues in which uh, to, to supplement this faith that you've been given by God. He says to pursue goodness, to pursue knowledge of God, to, to pursue self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly and sisterly affection and, most importantly, love. These, Peter says are all qualities that exemplify a holy and godly life because they're qualities that draw us closer to God and closer to each other. And they are all pursuits that will not be consumed. So the question for you would be, are you spending more of your time on earth piling up possessions that will not last, and these can be physical possessions or emotional possessions or whatever they might be? Or are you striving to develop Christ-like character? Are you striving to, to be holy and to be godly? Which are you doing? Well, in verse 12, Peter gives us the motivation for this type of living. So if you're, if you're troubled by that, he gives us the motivation. Verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So Peter keeps the eyes of his readers pointed, always pointed in a certain direction. And that direction is forward. It's never really on their current circumstances. He doesn't really say meditate upon whatever sufferings you're go going through. He always, he's always telling them to look forward. And you know this to be true. That, that, that when we, when you stare at your current circumstance, whatever it might be, you are easily overwhelmed by it. That's where an anxiety starts to, to, to arise and fear and all of those things. And you think, I'll never have relief from this. This will, this will never go away. All joy has left and it's never coming back and there is nothing but darkness. And that happens when we just meditate on and just focus on where we currently are. But if you, if you look at the scriptures as a whole, 
one of the themes of the scriptures that you see very quickly is that God's word always has our eyes cast ahead. So you have uh, Psalm 30, verse 5, uh, that says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So you may be weeping now, which doesn't just mean just at night and then joy is coming in the morning. Your weeping may be weeks or months or even years, but the promises of God say you look to the morning because joy is coming. It's coming. And then Psalm 121 verses 1 through 2 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So your help doesn't come from looking at your circumstances, but your help is looking to the hills where your Lord will come. And here in 2 Peter 3, there is no difference. The day of the Lord serves as our motivator. In verses 11 through 14, Peter tells his readers to look forward to this day three times. And within this looking forward is where he says we are, we find our motivation for living as Christians. So we have lots of things in our life that motivate, motivate us to do what we do. You're motivated to, to go to work, to earn money, to provide for yourself and, and for your family. You're motivated, uh, not to break the law because you fear the repercussions of the law. But likewise, as a Christian, we are motivated by the coming of Christ and the judgment of God. That should change the way we live. John Calvin, in his comments on this verse, says, quote, But the day of the Lord will come. This has been added that the faithful might be always watching. So Peter now shakes off our sleepiness so that we may attentively expect Christ at all times, lest we should become idle and negligent, as it is usually the case. For when is it that the flesh indulges itself? When is it that we seek to look in on ourselves? When there is no thought given to the nearness of God's coming. And this is nothing new in God's Word. In Hebrews chapter 12, the motivation for the life of godliness, again, is the coming of Christ and the final judgment of God. The author of Hebrews writes, At at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so we are doing two things as we live a, a holy and godly life, Peter says. We are looking forward to that day of the Lord, of his coming, and we are hastening it along. We are actually speeding its coming. To look forward to the day of the Lord is to believe that when Christ returns, all the promises of God will finally be confirmed and fulfilled. That God's kingdom will come in all of its fullness and the new heavens and the new earth will be established by Him. And that is something to look forward to. 
That is something as Christians to be excited about. But we also have a role to play in speeding that day's coming. It doesn't, this doesn't mean that we just kind of sit idly and do nothing. We don't do that. Peter clearly teaches that believers can advance the arrival of God's day by living godly lives. Think about what we pray at the beginning of every service. Every Sunday morning, uh, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And we pray this in the Lord's Prayer. You may not catch it every time, but we pray, Your kingdom come. We want God's kingdom to come, so we are seeking to, to hasten His kingdom coming through our prayers. Every single week we do that. But we are also seeking to hasten God's kingdom to come through the way that we live our lives. Look at verses 13 and 14. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. So we live this way in order to reflect the new order that will be inaugurated with the coming of the Lord. So you can kind of look at it as almost creating this this seamless line between our reality now and the reality that is to come. So when people outside the church experience us, they should be uh, getting a taste, just a taste, just a small taste of the new heavens and the new earth to come. This worship service should be, should be that. It should be a taste of the new heavens and the new earth to come as we gather around the throne of our King and worship Him for eternity. Well, the second way Peter calls the church to live in the meantime is by living patiently. So live diligently and now live patiently. Look at verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote, also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. So I say live patiently here because of the seeming delay between Jesus' ascension that we see in Acts chapter 1, we see that take place, Jesus ascends into heaven after the first time he's come, and this period in between uh, that and his second coming. So I understand it is very easy to believe that Jesus isn't coming back. That he's not going to do as he said and and return and, and gather his people. I mean, we see just corruption and destruction all around us every single day. We see how sin just overwhelms us at times, and we think, Lord, when are you going to return? It doesn't seem like that's going to happen. And it's much like what what you see in Exodus chapter 32, if you remember that story from the Old Testament, when Moses goes up on the mountain with God, and God is going to relay to him uh, not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire law uh, that tells God's people how to live lives that honor and glorify God. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and takes a little bit longer than God's people wants it to take. So the people then take matters into their own hands and they they construct their own God to worship and bow down to. They actually take all of their jewelry off 
throw it into the fire, and then they actually have someone mold and shape uh, a graven image so that they can look at it and say, this is the God who delivered us because we can't see him. And our leader is delayed in coming. And so we will worship this. Well, this is what is happening amongst Peter's readers with the false teachers. In uh, verse 4 of chapter 3, um, Peter says, they will say, speaking about the false teachers, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, I don't see it. I mean, corruption lies all around us. It seems like he is taking forever to come back. Where is the promise of his coming? And so Peter addresses this error so that his readers are able to live wisely and patiently in the meantime. This is why in verse 15 he gives instruction on on how they should look at at the patience of the Lord. That instead of, of seeing the Lord's delayed return as being a failure to fulfill his promises, we should see it rather as his patience in seeking the salvation of many. There is a, there is a massive purpose for God's delayed return. So in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So simply, God's timetable is not like ours. So we may be thinking, this is slow, but for God, this is, this is, this is not at all. This is quick. This is fast. Peter tells us this in verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So we are not to see God's delay as failure but as salvation, we are to see it as a grace from Him. That God is way more concerned with the fate of the unsaved than you and I are. That's what it means when we call Him long-suffering. God is patient for the lost to come to faith in Him, and that, Peter says, is to be counted as salvation. So for my friends who are here who do not yet know Christ, uh, this is for you. God is giving you time. We don't know exactly how much time. It says that, that God will come like a thief in the night, so, so we are to always be ready, but He has given you time nonetheless. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. And then in Romans 2.4, Paul also says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's asking a question here. Do you, do you, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience towards you, unbeliever? knowing that God's kindness here is meant for you to repent and believe the gospel. That's amazing. The patience that God is showing to you is His kindness toward you to lead you out of the darkness that you now find yourself in. But it's also why Jesus gave us as Christians the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
And this is why uh, we're told in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, how then can they call on the one uh, they have not believed in? And how can they believe in, in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we are to see God's patience as salvation and then bring the good news of the gospel to bear upon our neighbors, to be telling them of the kindness of God toward them in this way. This is why Jesus says things uh, in places like John chapter 9, verse 4, speaking to his disciples about the urgency of the time. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Because one day evangelism will cease. Sharing the gospel with our neighbor will be no more. Those works will be done. The day of the Lord is coming. So then in verse 16, Peter gives the other side of the argument for those who don't see God's patience as salvation, but rather see God's uh, timing as a license to sin. So they say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. So just take advantage of this time while you have it, and just have all the fun that you possibly can. So in verse 16, Peter says, he, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, I just want to add a quick side note here, okay, uh, that I think is important for, uh, for you guys to see, and it's that Peter is already equating, at this particular time in the early church, he's already equating Paul's writings as equal to the other scriptures. So this is important because it says that the early church uh, was already thinking of Paul's letters as inspired by God. And we know this to be the case because typically when Scripture uh, is mentioned or referred to in the New Testament, it was usually speaking about the Old Testament Scriptures. But here, Peter is saying, Paul's writings and the Scriptures are equal. And so what Peter is saying here to his readers is that these, uh, these false teachers were distorting Paul's writings, thus distorting the very Word of God. And we know that to be one of the many patterns of Satan himself. We, we saw that in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall, to distort the word of God in order to confuse and deceive. And this is what the false teachers were t- attempting to do amongst the churches in Asia Minor. They had to distort and twist the word of God to justify their own view of morality. Because they said, we want to live this way, we're happy this way, um, and this is, this is what God's word says we can do, but they are also preaching to people uh, that wanted to hear this type of message. They were tickling their ears. They wanted people that people wanted to hear what they had to say because it allowed them freedom to do whatever they wanted. So specifically, the, the teaching that they're distorting and twisting here of Paul's was his teaching on the freeness of the gospel or the freeness of grace. 
So you, some of you are probably familiar with Romans chapter 5, verse 20, when Paul makes this kind of provocative statement, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So you can see if you just lift that one sentence out of its context, you can have all sorts of fun with that. Well, you, you look at it and say, well, if I sin more, then grace will increase more. And that's okay. But it seems that the false teachers were using this <clears throat> particular verse um, to teach what Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, referred to as cheap grace. That yes, God saves you, but you can still live however you want because God will forgive you, right? But if you were to read this verse in its context, I mean the full, I mean the full context of Romans, but even just Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6, you should always be reading the scriptures in context. Always be weary of a teacher who is lifting a verse out of its context and then teaching on it. You need to read the verses around it to put it in its proper context. But if you, if you read this verse in its context, if you go on into chapter 6, you will see that Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is already addressing the argument. Paul already knew how people were starting to think about what he was saying. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So that completely negates the false teacher's teachings. Which is why Peter says, there are some things that Paul says that are hard to understand that the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So to, to twist and to distort the teachings of the Bible to justify your sin, just so you know, only leads to your own destruction. You are killing yourself by doing that. Because what you are doing when you do this is, is that you are twisting the truth that can save you into something that now cannot save you. So in our last point this morning, Peter leaves us, leaves his readers with the challenge to not remain idle in the meantime, but to live actively. <clears throat> Verse 17. Peter says, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So two ways in verses 17 through 18, Peter says we're to be active. Okay? Two ways. He says to be on your guard and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So in, in these two imperatives here summarize the entire letter that Peter has just written that we are to stay on our guard so that we don't fall prey to false teaching and lose our heavenly reward, that reward that we will receive at the last day. But the way in which we stay on guard is by growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand. So first, be on your guard. So in light of what Peter just said concerning the twisting and distorting of Scripture, he gives this warning to stay on your guard, to be vigilant, to be watchful. And he tells them this uh, interesting statement that he makes. He says, 
you have been forewarned about this. And the way in which they have been forewarned about this comes from both the Old Testament and the teaching of the apostles. So Paul and Peter himself. So what he is saying to them is, look, you are without excuse if you fall away from the faith. Because you know the truth. You understand the truth. And so if you fall away from the faith, that is on you. So remember, Peter says, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Peter knew how easy it would be to fall prey to false teaching, especially as one is faced with the outside pressures and ridicule that would come with being a Christian. So it would be, honestly, it would be much easier to just follow the crowd. I mean, it, it kind of sounds like Christianity. We have some tenets of it. We, we use the same language. Um, we, you know, we still gather It would be easier to do that, wouldn't it? But Peter says, no. Be on your guard against this way of thinking. And you have to think that that Peter knew something about the ease of falling to something like this. And this is just another another side note, that that the Bible is is true. Okay, because Peter is, is very honest about his sin and his downfalls. And he has some pretty embarrassing downfalls. And those are all recorded in the Scripture. So you don't have that. You don't have just a, a record of your downfalls written down for, for all of the world, world to read throughout the centuries. But Peter does. And he is not ashamed to point back at them. So, so one instance here, you have to think that Peter is thinking about this, is in Acts chapter 10 and 11. So it's recorded there that Peter saw this vision that he should no longer consider the Gentiles unclean. So Peter was a good Jew, and so he saw people outside of Judaism as unclean. That was their belief system. That was how they were taught. But now this new revelation comes to him from God in a dream and says, now you need to receive these people. What you thought was unclean is now clean because I've made it clean, God says. So that the gospel was to go to Gentiles as freely as it was to go to the Jews, to which Peter agreed. And and, and even after even being criticized by other people within the church over his vision, he defended it before the church council of Jerusalem, so much so that they all agreed, this is right. The gospel needs to go to everyone. But sometime in the in-between, Peter goes back on his original vision that he had. Because Paul explains in Galatians 2 and and names Peter by name that he opposed Peter because Peter acted hypocritically toward Gentiles. This was after his vision. So Peter went back on what he believed. And not only that, Paul then reports that the rest of the Jews, he doesn't just say, Peter fell, you know, we we forgive our dear brother, he's moving on. No, Paul continues on. Paul says these, this is what happened. So not only did, did Peter fall, but he, he brings the rest of the Jews that were with him down as well, and they all acted hypocritically along with him. So in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul uses the same verb that Timothy used, or that, Paul, that Peter uses in chapter 3, this led astray or carried away, when he describes what happened. He says, even Barnabas, who was a leader in the church, 
Even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Which proves just how easy it is for Christians and even Christian leaders to fall prey to false teaching. So Peter, in this instance, in his letter, had to be feeling the sting a little of this this time in his life, and he used it to caution the church to to be vigilant. So Peter is rightly concerned, as a good pastor should be, that some will fall away from their secure position. So let this be a warning uh, and be clear to you as well that just because you stand firm today doesn't guarantee that you will stand firm tomorrow. And that should strike a little bit of fear in us. I hope it does. I hope you're not in your pride saying, well, not me, I'm, I'm stronger than that. No, Your firmness today will not guarantee it tomorrow. And the way in which you avoid this is found in the second imperative that Peter gives here. And he says, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So growing in grace uh, bookends Peter's letter here. At the inception of his letter, the grace of God in Jesus Christ was primary. This is what Peter started with. He prayed in chapter 1, verse 3, that grace would be multiplied in his readers' lives. And so I love that grace uh, is, is what started our letter, and its grace is, is, is one of the very last thing that Peter says to his readers as well. Because he knows that grace is the most important thing for them. And we are to continue to grow until the day we die or Jesus returns, just like we sung a little bit earlier. We are to grow in it. We are to be uh, nurtured by it. And we are to be strengthened by it. And to know what a Christian who grows in grace looks like, you can simply read uh, places like Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. And these should be familiar to all of us, mostly. Uh, when It's the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things There is no law. So that's a good test to see whether or not you are growing in the grace of Jesus. Um, And then you read those uh, fruits of the Spirit and then ask yourself some of these helpful questions that one commentator pointed out to me. Am I growing in my ability to love others? How much joy do I experience in my daily life? Is peace something I experience or am I constantly anxious? How much have I grown in patience toward others and especially those who have sinned against me? How gentle have I been this week when dealing with others? Am I in control of my sinful impulses? Am I I showing self-control? How do I speak to others? What is the the tone of my voice? Does it exude kindness and love? So Peter also tells believers, he says to grow in in, in the grace of Jesus, but he also tells, tells believers to grow in the knowledge of Jesus as well. And this isn't just biblical knowledge, because I know a lot of you have a lot of biblical knowledge but, but rather, this is, this is growing in the knowledge of who Jesus is. 
And again, this is another theme that, that has been woven throughout, uh, second Peter. In, in verse one, or chapter one, verse two, grace and peace, uh, will be multiplied to you in knowing Jesus. Uh, chapter one, verse three, everything needed for life and godliness is available through knowing God. In chapter one, verses five through six, growing in knowledge is necessary for living the Christian life. In chapter 1, verse 8, growing in Christ is revealed by those who hold to the godly virtues. And then on the flip side, in chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, Peter says that those who renounce Christ after coming to know him, after having knowledge of him, are worse off than those who never professed faith in Christ in the first place. So growing in the knowledge of Jesus is vital, is essential for your eternal life. So it's fitting in that final verse of chapter 3 that, that Peter closes his letters with a doxology to Jesus. And remember, Peter, Peter uh, is, is uh, executed pretty soon after these letters are written. And this was his, this was his, his mindset. This is where, this was his frame, was the worship of Jesus. Because he, Peter knew that the salvation and perseverance of the saints, of believers, is ultimately the work of Jesus. And the one who does the work deserves the glory. So I'll close with Peter's final words. So to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I do pray that, that uh, to you would be the glory both now, at this very present moment, and into the day of eternity. For as many days that you give us on this earth, uh, day by day, moment by moment, that we would be a people who, uh, who give you the glory. That we would, that we would be a people who grow in, 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 in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ every single day. God, that you would keep our feet from stumbling. That we would stay away from, from those, uh, teachings that are false, that entice us, that sound so good, uh, to our ears because they allow us to do what we want. God, I pray that we would run from them. I pray that we would be, uh, faithful brothers and sisters to, to warn, uh, to, to warn one another, to remind one another, uh, even of the, of the grace and truth of the gospel that is ours freely. So God, I do pray that you would do that work here at Christ the King Church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.